You're listening to Human Rights Talks, organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. I'm here today with Amy Timken, a student in political science and international development, a research assistant at the Institute for International Women's Rights in Manitoba, and one of the most recent Canadian delegates to the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women, or CSW. Hello, Amy. Hi, Jay. So we kind of like started to touch on it earlier, um, but I'd really love to hear it from you a little bit more about the delegation that you recently participated in as part of the 67th Commission on the Status of Women. Um, Could you share a little bit about, first and foremost, what is the CSW? Like just top level overview and why is it a opportunity attending as a Canadian delegate? Sure. Yeah. Good question, especially because CSW as a whole and just the United Nations is, is, there's a lot to it. It's very abstract. So to explain it as, as simply as I can, CSW stands for the Commission on the Status of Women. And this year was the 67th, I guess, number of meeting for it. And it's, I believe, the largest gathering at the United Nations out of all the events that happen at the UN every year. There was, I don't even know, maybe tens and thousands of us all across the different buildings and different programs who came to CSW. And so essentially... CSW is the opportunity for delegates from all around the world to come together to talk about and advance gender equality. And each year of CSW is a different theme. So last year was climate change, and then this year was on technology and digital innovation. And there's two different things that go on there. So there's things called side events and parallel events. And so side events are typically sponsored and held by countries who also will partner sometimes with other countries to hold an event and also other civil society organizations. And there's also parallel events, too, which are held by civil society organizations as well. You mentioned that, um, you know, of course, the conference is about gender equality, but also this year the theme was digital innovation. So, um, like, why specifically did you want to get involved with the digital innovation theme? Funnily enough, when you mentioned that, when I was thinking about applying to CSW, I was a bit hesitant, right? Because the theme, admittedly, it's it's not necessarily in my realm of expertise because I'm a political science and international development major. And I was thinking, I, I don't know, because like I'm not a STEM major, I'm not a computer, so I can't code for anything, right? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that even though I'm not a STEM major, there are still so many different aspects of technology and digital innovation that my generation, you know, the Gen Zers, anyone born 1999 and above, that we have lived with for so long and we're so, I guess, equipped with probably and a lot and more literate in technology and a lot of different ways more than older generations probably realize or they have their own experiences with. So for this entire theme, it was just something that really spoke to me and I thought, why not I'll give it a shot? And so I applied and I was accepted to the delegation and that provided me with, I guess, two opportunities. One, to represent Manitoba with the Institute for National Women's Rights Manitoba at UN, at CSW, but also to be on the Canadian delegation, which kind of had a different set of roles, responsibilities. So the entire experience, it, it just came about. The things connected and there I went. Great. So you were talking earlier about how there were uh, parallel events that were happening while the CSW was underway. And you also mentioned how you were playing a role as a youth delegate. And so I understand that you were also participating in a parallel event that was entirely youth-led. Could you tell me a little bit more about what that is and, um, you know, what your role was there? Right. And so that was entirely youth-led and it was by the Young Slobats of Canada and Plan International Canada. And it was really special because all of the speakers were entirely youth. 
And so the parliament talked a lot about utilizing digital and technology innovation to improve gender equality, but also just so many things that come with that, especially of the harms that technology poses towards youth. Um, and there was one amazing speaker at that event. Her name's Caroline, and I believe she's from Toronto. And she is, I think, only 18. And she has done so many amazing things in the realm of gender equality and STEM that was just so profound to hear. And I think one of the things when I was watching this event happen, when I was in the room with everyone, is that it was so powerful just seeing a panel that was completely led by youth, especially all girls. And I was sitting there and I was like, you know, like maybe if I had seen an event like this, whether it was at the UN or just something within Winnipeg, if I had been able to go to an event or knew about an event that was about advocacy and it was all led by women and girls and all youth, you know, maybe I'd be in a much different place than I am right now, maybe doing even more like high level things. And to see all of those youth there and to see what they're talking about, just to have that actual youth perspective on technology innovation, because it's it's one thing to go to an event and you hear the government talking about technology and whatnot, but that's bureaucratic and, you know, they don't necessarily have that on the ground perspective. And so that event, it talked about a lot of different things, talked about gender-based violence, how we need to have an intersectional approach, how women in tech and entrepreneurs and, and startups, they're underrepresented, don't get as much funding as, as male counterparts. And just so many different things, even like we were talking about, I think it was like surveillance mechanisms, which has been like a scare tactic for women to not reveal any pictures of themselves, um, to retreat back into themselves when it comes to these online spaces. The entire event was just so profound to be at. And I just, I have to highlight just the fact that going to an event that was completely led by youth, I think that was probably one of the top highlights for sure. Great. And I'm curious, you were talking about looking at some of the unique ways that uh, youth are impacted by online harm. But would you be able to talk a little bit more, particularly for young women and girls, what are the unique impacts or like sort of what are the experiences of online harms in digital spaces? So I think we as a society have raced so steadfastly to create new technology, new interfaces, new apps, you know, new iPads, whatever it is, right? But less so the regulatory frameworks to address or to be a counterpart towards these things have not been equally as pursued. It's quite lacking. And it's a somber thought, but like one of the largest takeaways from CSW is that we live in an online world that's very unregulated. We don't have, for lack of a word, better word, like online law. You know, we, we definitely have rules and regulations in Canada on, on hate speech, on cybercrime, on cyberbullying. Um, but these concepts don't exist in a binary. And in many ways, so much online abuse and harms occur or perpetuate before we kind of see like the final concrete action of what was going on. Like, you know, for instance, a woman could be receiving all these messages, all these DMs, people liking her photos and 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 stalking her or trying to message her and she may try to block that person but they might may find many other ways especially with all of the ai and chat gbt and all those things going on however they use it right to either find where she works find where she lives and then god forbid that woman is harmed before she could ever even go through all of the other bureaucratic forms and, and steps to get like a restraining order right before she can even do that there was probably a series of events that's happened in the online space that happened before you know she was then harmed or something more concrete happened and so i think with women in these online spaces we we have a sense of or sorry to repeat that i think women in online spaces we have a sense to always have to look out for ourselves first probably and i would candidly and honestly say a lot more than men have to think 
whenever we post something, whether it's, you know, we post a bikini picture, you know, cause we're feeling good because we went to the beach looking with our friends. When we post that, I think subconsciously, a lot of us women think, okay, so like, how will this look to my employer? If they happen to see that I post this picture, if I'm going to post my gym progress, am I going to get men then messaging me very rude messages about my body and that kind of thing? I think for us, when, especially for people who are advocates, people passionate under quality, especially women journalists, for us to advocate in these spaces, whatever space it is, there's always going to be the fear of a retaliatory effort. For me, I, especially coming back from the United Nations, I was thinking, you know, I should set my Instagram to public. I should now have the ability to, to reach out to people more, to connect people more, to tag people. They can see what I'm saying, that we can interact that way. And for years, I've always had my Instagram private. And, you know, I, I realized like, and I was scared about this, but the second I set my Instagram to public, I was flooded with men messaging me. I had this one guy, as soon as I said it to public, he liked all of my photos from like the very first picture I posted. He went and he liked it and he was trying to message me and I blocked him and like, it was no big deal then. But like, you know, for a second, I'm sitting there at my phone, you know, and I was in the middle of a conference was going on. I'm thinking, oh my God, this is like really creepy. This is really scary that someone's doing that. And you just... It's just something that women have to carry a lot and technology just amplifies the violence and the microaggressions and the harm that women already face on an everyday basis. So I think with this online framework and the world we live in, women are just always having to look over our shoulders even more than we already do every day on the street. I think with, with this particular theme of CSW is that we have this generation now growing up that basically their entire lives have been online. You even have people, older generations, right, who are not realizing the intersection between violence and technology because, you know, like on YouTube, for example, you have people who are posting these vlogs and these everyday videos of their children growing up. And, you know, that's, it's great and it's sweet in a sense, but where's the consent for children and for youth to be filmed and to have their lives online like that? I think there is such a generational divide between older generations who are not as immersed in technology as we have not realizing the harms that we face. And just, you know, in online spaces, it's so easy to abuse people so quickly. And it just makes you wonder, like, where is the government um, oversight and outreach and intervention in this, in this crucial step? There were a couple of interest, actually a lot of interesting points to dig deeper on, but like maybe just a couple about sort of like the uh, abstraction of some of these cases where there is a disconnect from the actual like harmful action being perpetrated, the harmful behavior being perpetrated, and the actual lived experience and impact that comes from that harmful behavior. So if you want to talk more like the abstraction. I remember when I was growing up and I didn't get a phone, like an iPhone until I was 14, 15, right? For younger generations, right? The kids are being handed a phone when they're like, I don't even know, like seven, eight, nine, like quite young, being on an iPad when they're quite young. And the things that I, I see online and I see what younger people are posting and commenting and whatnot is that technology has such powerful, is such a powerful thing, but it's also such a dangerous thing. And I think when you give technology to youth who are not actually literate in what technology means, you know, what it means to have a digital footprint, 
you're you're going to see such negative disastrous consequences and people saying such hateful things especially when you think about when kids are growing up right like you 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 don't always know what's the right thing to say you don't always know your manners but then you're given a, a digital device and all of a sudden everything that you're not actually educated about that you're not mature about that's just like your platform for you then to you to then use and i think this is a crucial step where the education of just using technology needs to be multifold. There needs to be an interplay between education about technology and how to use technology respectfully. I think respect is a major thing, but also for parents and for family to know what their kids are doing online and not in terms of like a surveillance mechanism, but just to know that your child is using technology in a way that's respectful and is not trying to harm anybody. And especially for girls to be careful about what you post because you just never know who's then going to use it in such a negative and derogatory way. For me, having private accounts are some of the best things you can do as as much as I just realized myself, like switching my account from public after having it years to being private. I think it's also about youth knowing that people don't always deserve to have access to you online and not feeling pressured to always post things publicly. You talked about the switching your profile from private to public and kind of being flooded with this unwanted uh, type of attention. And I'm wondering, you know, like for like a much younger woman, for like teenagers and girls, what kind of like image or what kind of message that's sending about society, cultural expectations, you know, like what kind of impact is this having on like particularly young and vulnerable people that are experiencing the internet? I think, and it's something that's quite, it's quite emerging, but I think with TikTok, which has many negative impacts and rightfully so there's many things about TikTok that I do not like but what I've noticed so much from the younger generation like kids in, in middle school right is that women girls and women or sorry just girls and, and youth they're almost I don't know how to explain it but it's like when I was a middle schooler right I was, I was gawky. I had acne. I didn't wear makeup. I didn't know how to use makeup. I didn't know how to present myself at all. Boys, I had no idea how to act around them. I didn't dress, you know, like a, like a middle schooler, like graphic tees and cargo pants and that kind of thing. And now you see girls who, because of their access to technology in a lot of ways, they're dressing up a lot older. They're much more knowledgeable about things about being a woman that I didn't realize until I was, you know, way being a teenager in my early 20s. But they have access to that now at like 14, you know, 12, 13, 14, very, a very precious, precious age. And with TikTok, it's in a way, it's girls having this pressure to be perceived. And there's so many more avenues for girls to be perceived. And what I mean by that is that, you know, there's this thing called a male gaze, right? And it's about how women and girls are objects to be looked at by men through men for the for a man's pleasure and for a man's perspective. And in TikTok, I just think that women and, and girls, there's just there's so much more access to make yourself be an object of a man, whether or not girls actually realize that and with the intersection of social media and technology there's just so many more ways for girls to put themselves out there in online space that then men and whoever it is is happy men but just in general the world can then perceive them back and if girls don't know to you know set their comments off to private or you know they don't have any sort of protection frameworks in place when they put themselves online 
you you never know like because then grooming can occur you can have one thing that we talked about in the youth panel that i was talking about from young diplomats can apply international is that for for ethnic girls who feel not very set in their culture or they feel out of place in their in their ethnic background we talked about how there are white nationalist groups who will then prey on these girls because they know that they may you know for, for lack of a better word may not want to be a brown girl or a black girl and they will then introduce them to this white nationalist framework and just a whole slew of problems come from that right that's a whole other can of worms all of that to say is that we are seeing girls put into these online spaces at a rate never that we have before right into 2023 um, and there's just so much harm that comes from it and we don't have enough protective measures in place to help these girls in these online spaces okay so when we think about policy and when we think about regulation from where we're at now do you see things getting better or worse in the near future politics is not necessarily just your personal beliefs politics affects everything around the world everything in life is political. You know, the fact that I was able to wake up today to have a job, you know, that's political in itself. A hundred years ago, women weren't even considered people, you know? And I think if there's one thing that I would like to put out there into the world is that, you know, we need to engage youth to think about politics as not just being about an ideology. It's very much about human rights and whose human rights people are which people or the groups of people in the world who are not afforded the same human rights as you, young girls who are passionate about something, there needs to be those mechanisms in place that nurture that passion for it. And to have adults like recognize that about their students, about what they're passionate about and find ways to help nurture that fire and that energy. Government needs to be including youth a lot more in the conversation when it comes to technology. It, there's just there's no way that we can talk about technology and about gender equality and and youth and women if they're not consulted in the process. One of the things that we talked a lot about at CSW is that you know women and girls gender equality they can't be an afterthought. They can't be like an after direction once a policy has implemented. They have to be consulted and and put into the process at at the beginning. It has to be what we were talking about at CSW is that they have to be embedded into the code. I really want to think about the disconnect between gener- the, the, the generational disconnect. Do you see any like paths for pathways forward to sort of bring younger generations and older generations sort of more together to be able to talk about these issues? When when you first said this question, what made me think about engaging youth meaningfully is for government to bring the discussion to youth and not necessarily youth having to bring the discussion to government. What I mean by that is that, you know, for example, when I went to CSW, my trip for full transparency was was funded by the government, my my airfare, my plane, my flight, that kinds of thing. It was it was funded. And so that made it 10 times more accessible for me to go to CSW than what than a lot of people had to experience, right? Because they had to financially put that up for themselves. For for government and for anyone wanting to involve youth in this process, that you need to understand that there are so many obstacles for youth to be an advocate. It's time off of work. It's having transportation. It's having the financial means to you know fly yourself to a summit, fly yourself to a conference. The best way that government or any other stakeholder could engage youth in this process is to remove those barriers as much as possible and have it to be equitable and open for all. 
one thing I want to speak about as well about being a youth advocate in these spaces is that, you know, a lot of the time when you go to these forums is that youth, I, I find can always feel just a little bit unsure of themselves. They can feel, you know, like, uh, like I, I know it's, it's great for me to be here, but like, I don't really know what I can offer. Like maybe my opinions won't be, won't be as valued. And it's really important for government, whoever it is, to understand not to tokenize youth. There was a moment at CSW where we had this meeting at the permanent mission of Canada to the UN, where it was the whole delegation were speaking with Minister Marcy Ian. She's amazing. And we had a whole roundtable thing with her where we all went and just spoke about, you know, issues happening to us in our home cities or home provinces, just gender equality, things about CSW. And one of the first things I said to Minister Marcy Ian is that, you know, I understand that at this table, I am the only youth person here. And I said, you know, I understand that I'm not a STEM major, but I'm also a youth in this space who has lived with technology for years now and is quite immersed in it. There needs to be more time given to youth respectively and just to to give youth the autonomy in those spaces. So like when we think about technology as a tool, you know, I wonder if you have any thoughts on uh, the way it can be used to empower and uplift women and girls politically, culturally, economically, or otherwise. One of the things that stood out to me the most from CSW is that um, we had this event at the Canadian Mission or the Canadian Parent Mission of Canada to the UN. And it was an entire event on what's called the Signal for Help which is a tool to help those experience gender-based violence that someone can use without a digital trace uh, to communicate they need someone to safely check in and support them. And that was something that I thought was just so profound and so amazing um, because when it comes to women trying to reach out, you know, trying to send a message, trying to send an email, that can, it leaves a digital footprint and that can be a way to harm them. There was a story that was shared with us at one of the parallel events about a a woman, I, I'm going to get some of the details of the story mixed up, but there was a woman, I believe, somewhere, and she had reached out online somehow to communicate that she was either wanting to leave her husband or she was just writing down digitally that she was wanting to just get away from some sort of abuse. And the men and the the male's group of friends um, then tracked her down through through online means, and they did horrible, horrible things to her, all because she had tried to speak up online. So I think in talking about the signal for help, it's just one tool that can be used um, to help those experience gender-based violence. And just as a whole, technology, as much as it facilitates violence, it can also be a way to to have women share their voice. Like on TikTok, as much as I've talked about the negativity of TikTok, it's also a way that just connects people on such an instant level about things that are happening around the world and things that, you know, either governments or social media won't be covering. You know, you have you have women within Iran or Afghanistan who are posting videos and content about what's actually happening to them in their home countries, the ways their government is not protecting them. And it's a way that we can stand in solidarity and to raise awareness about different issues. And I think as a whole, social media can also just be a great avenue to extend um, advocacy efforts. Um, for me, when I was speaking, when I went to the Plan International Summit, or sorry, to the event hosted by Plan International and the Young of Canada, you know, you share LinkedIn's, you share Instagram. And because I did that, um, that was one of the ways I was um, invited actually to go to Toronto at the end of the month um, to do, to be a speaker um, for the Plan International Youth Summit. So 
social media and technology as a whole is just, it has a profound way of connecting people um, politically, culturally, economically. Um, but there definitely has to be a side of caution to it as well. That's really interesting the way you're sort of uh, describing how it is like um, not just having the possibility of amplifying like either like hatred or empowerment, um, but how it's like doing those things simultaneously. Yeah. One of the biggest takeaways too that I should have mentioned earlier about CSW is that we are, we think about technology in Canada. We think that everyone has an access to an iPhone, you know, but I think when you really boil it down, like people around the world do not have the same access to technology. There, there is, there is still a privilege in being able to have a device that can amplify your voice. But for so many people, they don't even have that. And I think that's something that we as Canadians should really think about, especially, you know, in North America, Western perspective, we we're very individualistic. We tend not to look outside our box, but there's so many things about technology beyond just innovation, beyond having AI, beyond having whatever it is that fundamentally people don't have. And we're almost coming to this new point in the world where having internet access and having technology is, you know, it's, it's kind of becoming akin to a human right. Being able to share thoughts online, to have access to things online, it's, it's almost becoming like a, a new human right, a new universal human right, human right that should be protected, which I think is something in the future that's going to be very interesting because we still have state actors and, and countries and whatnot who are actively trying to suppress the voices of their citizens. Okay, that's kind of the bulk of the questions that I had here to ask. Um, I did want to give you like a couple opportunities. Are there any anecdotes, thoughts, experiences uh, that you want to either go more into or something that you would like to uh, sort of bring up? One of the things that became really clear to me at the UN is that I went to this event that was hosted by UNICEF and it was this very like round circle event of women and girls all around the world coming together, right? And there was people of all, all ages at the event. And so they had us go into a group setting with like two or three people and we were to share the very first time we just had this inkling that like something was just like wrong in the world, right? And so in my group, I had shared that there was a time when, when I was solving breast when I was 10, 11, 12, and I was on the playground and a little kid younger than me came up to me and he just grabbed my boob. Like he just, he just fondled my breast. Like it was very, it was very rough. It was very aggressive. He just, he fondled my breast. And that was the first time essentially that anyone had ever t touched me inappropriately and I remember I was just, I was so mad. I was so angry. And I remember I went and I complained to my lunchtime supervisor. And she said to me, oh, Amy, you know, that just means that he likes you. When we talk about the generational divide, we still have so much work to do when it comes to educating not only youth, but just adults about what it means to have free and informed consent and consensual practices. And so I shared this story because afterwards we had the, another sharing circle. And so I shared this story about what happened to me when I was a young kid, a young girl um, in the setting. And there were some members of my fellow Canadian delegation who was also in this meeting. They were not sitting next to me, but they were a bit farther around. And so when I took the microphone and I just shared what happened to me, how it made me feel and how I said, you know, that was probably the first time I kind of felt what feminism was like or what I felt to be like a feminist. And so when that happened and I shared that story, there were some older women who kind of recoiled. They were kind of, they looked uncomfortable. They looked a bit like, uh, like, you know, why are you talking about it kind of thing? And so 
right then and there, that is kind of like your glimpse of this generational divide between adults and youth. And when it comes to talking about actively trying to overcome patriarchy and, and to further gender equality, is that we're still at a standstill sometimes about speaking candidly about our experiences as, as women. And I think my generation, we, we're becoming a lot more equipped, a lot more autonomous and speaking about what happens to us and having that voice. And I think for a lot of people in the older generations, they're still not used and they're still maybe perhaps not comfortable with the fact of speaking candidly and freely about experiences that happen to us as women. Amazing. Amy Timken, thank you so much for joining us today for Human Rights Talks. Yes, thank you so much. 